0: Good morning. Uh, we're uh, going to go on the record and uh, we'll dispense with the uh, calling of the calendar. and I'll ask the clerk to call the first name, the first case.
1: Case number 22 1368 from Southern Iowa. Case number 22 1576 from Southern Iowa. United States versus Jeffrey Cook. Ms. Quick. Good morning. May it please the court. Mr. Cook was convicted after a jury trial of several charges related to tax law violations. While I'm happy and prepared to address any questions on any of the issues raised in the brief, today I plan to focus on the Ferretta challenge, Mr. Cook's guideline challenge, and the government's cross-appeal asserting that the district court erred in refusing to impose the cost of prosecution. Turning first to the FERETA challenge, Mr. Cook's waiver of the Sixth Amendment right to counsel was not knowing, voluntary, and intelligent. As a preliminary matter, the standard of review for this argument is de novo. The government does not strongly assert that plain error review applies to this claim, and no court has so held. Um, so, un- But under either standard, under plain error or de novo review, Mr. Cook's waiver was not valid. The parties agree that when determining whether a... For at a colloquy was sufficient, it's not about looking and seeing if certain questions were asked and checking those questions off, and if they were, then it's a valid waiver. It's personal to each circumstance and each defendant. Our position is if that something comes up during this colloquy, the defendant makes a statement that is a fundamental misunderstanding of a Sixth Amendment right to counsel, or is something simply incorrect, then the trial court conducting that colloquy has the, has the burden or the the duty to inquire and to clarify into any misstatement or incorrect belief. The failure to do so results in an invalid waiver. And that's exactly what happened here. Mr. Cook, during that initial FREDA waiver, and then even in a later hearing, indicated an incorrect belief on the ethical obligation of defense attorneys and appeared to believe that any defense attorney who was appointed to him would be in cahoots with the prosecutor, with the court, and didn't understand the duties and obligations um, that defense attorneys have towards their clients. Does it make
2: any difference that um, he went through three colloquies with, I think, I'm not positive, at least two judges, maybe three different judges, all of whom, I think, uh, found his, his waiver to be knowing, intelligent, and voluntary?
1: I don't believe so, Your Honor. And because Mr. Cook was advised over and over again, this is a bad idea, you know you will do better having appointed counsel. But if it was never clarified to him throughout these three colloquies or these three different interactions what that attorney's obligations were and their duties to him were, he couldn't intelligently and voluntarily and knowingly waive it if he clearly didn't understand what he was waiving. So even though it was discussed multiple times, because that was not clarified and explained to him, he didn't know what he was giving up. Um, was and it that was, was,
3: at, at one point it seemed to me that one of the one of the three judges did begin to address this idea of what it means to be a member of the bar and and a lawyer representing you and and i and i thought that mr cook said something like well even so i don't want one some some phrase like that does that sound familiar in the record to you
1: yes your honor um,
3: and what do we do with that it almost was like well that's he had a number of concerns about going with counsel, and this is one of them as you raised. But does it matter that he sort of like, well, I've got other reasons sort of that I don't want one as well?
1: No, Your Honor. Um, and I would note that specific colloquy that the court is referencing, that judge in that instance did do a little bit more than the first judge, where the first judge said fair enough and then didn't elaborate or explain anything further. But still, the later discussion where the i believe that started because Mr. Cook stated well Mr. call the prosecutor you're a member of the bar and all attorneys are members of the bar still in that interaction the court didn't state they have ethical obligations to you there are special protections in this circumstance between a defense attorney and a defendant didn't explain things like you know attorney client privilege conflicts, um, just the ethical obligations in general, there was a discussion, but it was too vague. It was simply, yes, attorneys are all part of the bar, but it doesn't mean they're on the same team. They still have a duty to represent you zealously. And when someone like Mr. Cook, who's already expressed and relied upon this document, saying, I think that at the end of the day, they have to default to their duty to the court and their duty to the prosecutor over me, that saying they have a duty to represent you zealously is insufficient
2: what was what what was said necessarily incorrect, and the reason why I say, state that is for example, you know a lot of times um, uh, uh, defendants want a particular case cited, and the case has been overruled right and sure. so the, the attorney's not going to cite an overruled case to the court or they want a particular defense uh, brought, but there's no evidence supporting it and so um, in the end, the the counsel can't make completely frivolous arguments or violate his duty to the court. So is there, I mean, it's sort of a touchy question, but where, where did, I guess I'm, I'm pointing to you, where in the transcript did it cross the line in, in terms of him not having, him having a completely incorrect understanding and the district court not correcting it? So
1: the, the point across the line would be when he was referencing this document that was entered at Exhibit A, and he represents it, this document is very biased and obviously an indicator giving to people who are saying, you shouldn't trust your attorney. And at the point he's re- relying on this document where it states, and it's kind of, it seems that it's kind of cherry-picked one section, saying the duty of your attorney is first to the courts and to the prosecution, then to you. At the point where Mr. Cook is citing this and saying this, that's when the alarm bells kind of go off, and there was a duty on the trial court to say, well, it's not that simple. And it's something that, you know, lawyers might understand, but quite often our clients just don't. And it's something that needs to be explained to them. And simply stating fair enough and then entering this as an exhibit was not enough to ensure that Mr. Cook really understand what he was understood what he was waiving and what he was giving up in his right to counsel. And I would agree that the other circumstances of these different colloquies in and of themselves, wouldn't be sufficient to establish an invalid waiver. But it kind of bolsters this initial claim that it was not a valid waiver. Mr. Cook did not recall what happened in his case just a few years ago, quite simple case, when he represented himself, and he did not appear to um, care or understand what would would happen to him um, with regards to sentencing. So for all of those reasons, we assert that his FREDA waiver was invalid and reversal is required. Turning next to his sentencing
2: challenge. Before you turn there, I just want to ask you. I know you didn't get get a chance, but what did he exactly mean? If you can tell, when he said uh, that there was no longer any controversy after he registered a bond condition to answer any judgment, that was the other ground for why it was. I I don't even know what that means. Did you have any idea what that means? I have
1: no idea what that means. Okay, yeah, um, and I think our position is that that alone wouldn't be enough to establish an invalid waiver, but it insho- it shows that it wasn't valid and. How, potentially, if Mr. Cook, and maybe Mr. Cook, even if it was explained to him, the duties and ethical obligations of a defense attorney would still have waived. But we don't know that because he wasn't provided those warnings and wasn't able to give a valid waiver. Turning next to the guidelines challenge, um, the district court committed procedural error in calculating Mr. Cook's guideline range. Um, The consummate of the asset count, count 13, should not have been grouped with the remaining 12 counts. Because of this improper grouping, that two-level obstruction enhancement was applied. Now, the PSR and the prosecutor asserted that grouping was appropriate under 3D 1.2C. Under there, it states, the guidelines state, if this separate count, if the obstructive conduct that forms the basis for this separate count was for the purpose of obstructing the investigation into the remaining counts, then the then the... Counts should be grouped. But here, this concealment, um, this refusal to turn the car over, was not about obstructing the remaining counts. It was not for the purpose of obstructing the remaining counts. And the fact that this might have been fruits of some of the other charges is insufficient to show that this this concealment was for the purpose of obstructing the investigation into the other counts. And I would note... um, the obstruction of justice enhancement in general, under the commentary notes, notes that the obstruction enhancement is potentially not applicable in circumstances like when a defendant is arrested and as they're being arrested they're trying to flush drugs down, down the toilet or something like that. And this is akin to that. Here's a circumstance where the agents are coming in, they're serving seizure warrants, and is simply refusing to turn over the car. Um, So for those reasons, we assert it was procedural error to group and then therefore apply this two-level enhancement. And this error was not harmless, and the government can't meet its burden to prove it was harmless. Um, This court has stated that alternative sentences can um, establish harmless error, but how those generally occur is when a district court is at the conclusion of, of the sentencing, imposing a sentence, stating the reasons for the sentence under 3553A, makes a statement, you know, even if I'm wrong on this enhancement, I would still give the defendant the same sentence for X, Y, and Z reasons. But that's not what the district court did here. The district court didn't make that statement at the when imposing the sentence and discussing the 3553A 30, factors. The district court made this kind of alternative sentence statement when ruling on the guidelines challenge and didn't even explicitly state as... Um, does occur when imposing an alternative sentence or giving an alternative basis, simply said, you know, I would vary upward. Didn't state my sentence would be the exact same. Um, Just indicated that maybe there would be grounds to go upward even if this two-level enhancement didn't apply.
2: On the money laundering count, um, I wonder, you you know, you make a good argument about this isn't traditional obstruction, but the fact of the matter is, is the money laundering, and it's not really traditional money laundering either, uh, going out and buying a $200,000 $200,000 Mercedes is not exactly hiding your assets. But, um, but, but nevertheless, I, I just wonder whether hiding the car is an obstruction. Because, you know, in, in a murder case, you want to have the body. In a money laundering case, you want to have whatever, whatever item the, per- purchase bought, the person bought or whatever. And so here, they didn't have that. So perhaps it would have been more difficult to prove the money laundering count as to that particular car. And doesn't that constitute obstruction?
1: So I would disagree, um, and I think at least for purposes of this enhancement, looking at when grouping is apl- applicable, when you have an obstruction separate count, what's critical is the language that says, for the purpose of, for the purpose of obstructing the investigation into the remaining counts. Here, Mr. Cook, and while we might disagree on this belief, was reasonable or valid, he believed this, uh, the seizure warrant was invalid because the date was wrong, and a, and. His belief, as he stated during trial, was, I just wanted to ensure my due process rights were upheld. And while it did eventually go to a hearing and Judge Jarvey ordered that the um, car be overturned or be turned over to law enforcement, and he immediately did so. Immediately gave them keys and let them know where the car was. So um, I think the key here when thinking about grouping is that for the purpose of language. Um, if there are no other questions on the sentencing challenge, I turn next to the government's cross-appeal. The district court was correct to deny the prosecution's request for Mr. Cook to pay the cost of prosecution for two reasons. First, the government failed to file an affidavit of costs, which is a statutory requirement. And second, um, the district court was correct that this court's precedent requires that district courts consider the defendant's ability to pay before imposing costs of prosecution. Now turning first to the failure to file an affidavit, this is mandatory. It's something that must be filed when requesting the cost of prosecution because it's necessary for the district court to determine if these are reasonable costs. Even if it's a situation where the cost of prosecution should be imposed, there still needs to be the analysis of whether this number is right and whether this number is appropriate to order. And the failure to file that affidavit prevented the district court from making that analysis this court has reversed for the failure to file an affidavit of costs and also has um, refused to allow it to be cured on remand, finding that it would be unreasonable to allow the court to do so. And I think it's another kind of relevant school of thought to this of why this court shouldn't allow remand to file an affidavit of costs, similar to the idea of you don't get a second bite at the apple. If there's a claim that a party is making... And that party had the opportunity to put forward whatever evidence, or in this case, the affidavit, and then come up on appeal. If there's no good reason why that wasn't done in the first instance, this court shouldn't give the party an opportunity to fix it on remand.
0: So if uh, the... uh um, government had stood up and said, hey, we can't put in our affidavit of, of cost of prosecution at this point because we have an expert that we intend to call the sentencing hearing, um, and that's going to be an additional cost. So we would ask leave to file our affidavit following the hearing. Uh, that would be okay?
1: I would think so. Okay.
0: If- so, so the problem here is that the issue was never really preserved.
1: And I don't and I looked and I couldn't find any indication that this cost of prosecution would be something like restitution where it's like you can order it, but we're going to set another hearing to figure it out at a later date. I didn't find anything that equating the two that this is something that could be delayed for a later hearing.
0: Well, I may have a broader view of what the inherent powers of district judges are, <laughs> but I do think that the, that the judge could have done that right I mean
2: you know right. I mean
1: if, even if the judge could have, it just wasn't addressed it, it wasn't brought up.
2: Um, but it's also not, and I'm getting getting to the next point a little bit, but it's also not a fine. We said it was a fine. I think we were wrong. I think it's just plain wrong to call it a fine because it lists fines and then it lists costs separately. So just by sort of the way you read statutes, it can't be a fine. Um, and so it's somewhere in that nebulous area between maybe restitution and fine. So does that change the analysis at all?
1: as far as the second kind of second part of yeah. whether the district court should have considered the ability to pay
2: well no no just generally in terms of whether you know the when you file it because we get I mean we get motions for costs many many months after after you know for for taxation of costs on on an appellate level and so I just wonder whether it's as fatal as you think it is if it's if it's sort of a kind of a form of restitution even though it may not be bound bound by the same rules of restitution
1: I would say it's fatal because it wasn't, maybe repeating what I said, it just wasn't addressed at all. If this is something that, you know, there was no indication, like, well, there might be costs because of what's going to happen in that sentencing, or we haven't received information from this witness or this expert, that might be a different circumstance. But we're also dealing with kind of the unique circumstance of a criminal defendant. I think this comes up more often when you're dealing with civil cases, and generally The defendant's case is complete at the time of sentencing, at least with the trial court. And the only circumstance I could think of was restitution. But even in restitution, where it's something that's going to happen after that sentencing hearing, um, that's something that should be at least discussed at the sentencing hearing. And as far as just quickly to address just the merits of the argument that the district court must consider the ability to pay, um, Wyman is not controlling and May is binding on this court. Um, Wyman didn't explicitly address the ability to pay. That argument wasn't raised by the defendant in that case. There, the defendant stated, well, I had a court appointed an attorney, so you can't order me to um, pay the cost of prosecution. And the court rejected that argument, stating that indigent defendants are not necessarily judgment proof, indicating that, there might be a circumstances where it's appropriate not to impose the cost of prosecution. May did explicitly address this issue and stated that the court must consider the ability to pay. And later panels have followed May as requiring um, courts to consider ability to pay.
2: Although that's based on, I think it's kind of a throwaway line at the end. And it's based on the, I think, mis- clear misbelief that it's a fine, not, not a form of, of cost or restitution.
1: I think... I mean, even if the court disagrees with May, yeah. it is, it's kept binding on this court. But I do think May was right to say it's akin to a fine. It's similar to a fine. It might not be exactly like a fine, but it's kind of within the same vein of a fine. Um,
2: and what do we, is there a way to read Wyman and May t- together? That uh, you, you know, reconcile them.
1: I do believe so. And I believe the way to read them is that Wyman didn't explicitly address what May did. And is that, is it ever not appropriate to consider? Or is it ever, is a district court always barred from considering the ability to pay?
2: Let me give you another interpretation, which is it has to be above zero, which is what Wyman says. It needs to be at least positive. But how much it is depends upon the ability to pay. So whether it's $1 or $1,600 depends on the ability to pay. That would be a right way to reconcile both cases pretty cleanly, I think.
1: Potentially, um, and considering what the costs actually are. um, But I would, in this circumstance, I don't think there was any challenge that Mr. Cook didn't have the ability to pay. And he already had a $400,000 restitution obligation. Um, There are no immediate questions. I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal.
0: Thank you.
4: Mr. Call. May it please the court... Andrew Call for the United States. I tried this case in the court below. Like Ms. Quick, I will address the Ferretta issue, the sentencing issue, and the cost of prosecution issue, of course, being available to answer any other questions the court may have about the other issues. There were four, if not five, Ferretta proceedings in the district court. Uh, If you will, I will assume, for the sake of argument, that Judge Adams at the initial Freda hearing might have explored this issue of the duties of counsel a little bit more uh, in depth, although I think, frankly, uh, her colloquy and findings are well supported by the record and adequate. But assuming the other to be the case, uh, there were additional proceedings. Uh, Mr. Cook failed to appear for a pretrial conference and was arrested uh, as a result of a bench warrant and had an appearance in front of another magistrate judge, Judge Loker. Uh, judge Loker again discussed uh, the Ferreira waiver with him uh, and asked Mr. Cook, frankly, to consider uh, accepting the appointment of counsel. Mr. Cook wavered a little bit but said uh, for the time being he wanted uh, to continue to represent himself. Uh, Then after he was uh, released and the status conference uh, finally occurred on August 27th, that was the date where the district judge in great detail talked about this notion of lawyers being on the same team and uh, what the duties of loyalty were. Uh, Judge Ebinger explained, quote, these are standards that govern everyone who practices law, and they under those standards, are required to zealously represent the clients they work with. So I think with that statement alone adequately explained to Mr. Cook to the extent he needed that kind of explanation uh, that a lawyer who represented him would have a duty of loyalty uh, to him.
2: What if he still didn't understand that? What if he made – I don't know if he did. I forget the the ordering of what happened. But what if he comes back and says, but, Your Honor – they're not rep- the is not representing me as this you know sheet says. the counsel is, is, is owes a duty to the court. and then is the, is the duty discharged by the judge if the judge can just move on from there and ignore that statement?
4: Well, I think the judge can make a finding based on the totality of the record, uh, whether the defendant is engaged in some sort of gamesmanship or whether there really is uh, a failure to communicate. Uh, here, uh, Mr. Cook's response was, I still don't think it's in my best interest to take representation. That's his personal choice under uh, Ferretta that has to be, uh, that has to be honored. Uh, Judge Ebinger again, at the final pretrial conference, which would have been, I believe, the Friday before trial, again went through a Ferretta inquiry. You've declined the assistance of counsel. Yes. You're doing that knowingly and voluntarily because you want to be the person speaking for yourself in court. Yeah, yes, I do. Uh, And then it was addressed again on the morning of trial uh, in a more summary fashion, although uh, there was an extended uh, discussion about this bond issue and the judge explaining uh, to Mr. Cook that this was not some sort of Title 15 or commercial dispute or some other uh, issue, but it was a criminal uh, case. And so that was uh, explained to him. So I think based on The record, uh, Mr. Cook's concerns, were adequately addressed by the uh, district court. Uh, There was no uh, Ferretta error, and uh, that argument ought to be rejected by this court. Uh, As to the sentencing issue, the uh, probation office uh, did uh, explicitly tie the enhancement to the money-laundering counts, and specifically the count 10, which related to the uh, sedan that Mr. Cook said the, uh, that, he, that he hid. Uh, as a side issue, Mr. Cook has a theory that he didn't believe the warrant was valid, and he uh, had questions about it. Well, those are really more uh, jury arguments uh, than anything else. Uh, if uh, you look at the uh, seizure warrant. It is true that it has a thirty twenty date on it. Although right below that, the clerk stamp makes clear that it was filed in twenty twenty, uh, and uh, obviously it was served in twenty twenty, not thirty twenty.
2: And you say it's a jury question because uh, the jury found him guilty on the concealment of an asset count.
4: Yes, as well as the the, the, the money laundering. Uh, sure. That these sort of feel like. You know, jury arguments. What you know? What did Mr. Cook believe? Well, what Mr. Cook believed uh, was up for the jury to decide, and uh, the district court found that uh, the verdict was supported by overwhelming uh, evidence. Uh, I also think that well, doesn't the obstruction
0: um, enhancement itself require some state of in of knowledge, some intent uh, to? uh uh, to obstruct,
4: absolutely right. And,
0: and so, then isn't the question of what he believed he was doing? Isn't it at that point not a jury? It's a question ultimately for the finder of fact at the time of sentencing, not not a jury question.
4: I think that's a fair point, and I think. But the district court need not have accepted Mr. Cook's self-serving uh, statement uh, here as. As well, uh, moving to the harmless error argument, you know, I, don't, I don't think there are any magic words or a particular point in the proceeding where the district court has to say at the time of imposition of sentence, well, going back to my prior comment on variance, I would uh, arrive at the same sentence. I think based uh, on the extensive discussion uh, that Judge Ebinger had uh, regarding this enhancement and uh, her view that Uh, it would be inappropriate not to have this additional uh, penalty uh, imposed for uh, purposes of the concealment of the asset, even if uh, Mr. Cook's reading of the guideline was uh, correct, is more than sufficient to meet the government's burden of showing uh, harmlessness. Finally, uh, as to the issue of uh, cost of prosecution, I will uh, address both prongs of the uh, argument. Uh, As to the merits, Wyman says the trial court had has discretion to impose either a fine or imprisonment or both, but the trial court does not have discretion to fail to award costs. And I think that takes care of the idea that there's some way to reconcile Wyman with May.
3: Uh, Counsel, isn't there something different, though, between going in forma pauperis as in Wyman and then later um, in May talking about an ability to pay Seems to me that while those are related, they're not necessarily the same thing. The same analysis.
4: I would say the analysis would be uh, very similar to uh, the analysis for for restitution, pur- mandatory restitution purposes, for special assessments. Uh, those are mandatory, and there's simply no room in the statutes uh, to allow for. A district court uh, to engage in these findings. And I uh, think the the Chavez and the cases from the other circuits uh, we've cited in our brief are also uh, consistent with this idea that costs of prosecution are, it's really a binary uh, decision. Uh, Either the costs have been established uh, or they haven't, but the ability to pay is not relevant. not a relevant factor that the district court can consider. Could you?
3: And I guess my, my question is, is much for sort of reconciling the two cases. I understand your position that you think May is just an incorrect. I, at, at least I think that's what you're saying. Yes. But in terms of what we need to follow, I'm just wondering if that distinction is a me- meaningful enough that we could at least start there for for distinguishing them to say that Wyman just didn't address what they did. I,
4: I I understand the argument. Uh, the government just doesn't think there's a, any room there uh, for for the sort of distinction that your honor is uh, is suggesting. Uh,
2: Moving on then to the. Let me ask you this. I'm going to follow up. So I'm, I'm having difficulty with Wyman and May. I think that they're potentially irreconcilable. Um, but I'm going to ask you: as, they'd be potentially irreconcilable if there's zero ability to pay and no um, no costs were ordered. At that point, for sure, they would be irreconcilable because you would take away the mandatory duty to order them. But. I wonder if if there's a middle ground i, I just want to get your um, get your take on it, which is they have to be positive, you have to order them, but it doesn't say you have to order them at a particular amount, so at least at least may doesn't say that um, so I'm wondering if that is a is a potential middle ground or whether you think that the government's position is nope that doesn't work either
4: that's I me mean, i I will be honest i hadn't thought of that permutation uh, before our argument today i I understand the appeal of uh, that approach. Uh, as a practical matter, uh, costs uh, tend to be fairly nominal. I mean, this is one of these issues that comes up a lot and you may seem very s- small potatoes, but has this ability to repeat itself in case after uh, case, which is one of the reasons uh, we are bringing this question uh, to, the, uh, to the court uh I do want to address the 1924 issue which I am frankly embarrassed uh, by the government uh, did not file the affidavit, uh, but we would uh, underline a couple of things. First of all, the failure of the government to issue and to file an affidavit was not raised in the district court below, so we're uh, trying to address this for the first time here uh, on appeal but Uh, The costs have not been taxed because of the procedural posture we find ourselves in. Uh, The fact that they haven't been taxed means that the affidavit can still be filed in the district court. Uh, Highland, uh, which is the first case uh, that uh, Mr. Cook talks a lot about in his uh, brief, uh, did involve a Uh, remand for purposes of an affidavit. In the Highland case, the district judge uh, had apparently considered cost of the investigation as something that ought to be imposed. And as I read the case, essentially, sua sponte had imposed cost of prosecution. There was no affidavit, and this court said the matter had to be remanded and an affidavit would could be filed uh, during the proceedings on remand. Uh, Barcom, uh, the 2022 case we talk about in our brief, uh, indicates, again, that it is acceptable uh, to file uh, the bill at some later time. That in Barcom, the issue was apparently a timing requirement of the Rules of Civil Procedure that would not apply in this case, whether the district judge had discretion uh, to uh, allow the party to file an untimely affidavit.
2: Suppose that, the, uh, that there had been no appeal filed here where the government could raise this. Um, would this would, – would long after the trial is over, several months after the trial is over, sentencing is done, could the government, under your view, could the government go back in and say, hey, district court, we forgot something, we're filing an affidavit of costs, Please give us those costs because we messed up here.
4: I think that would be extreme. I don't think the government would do that. I don't think we could do that. I think, I mean, once the uh, judgment is entered and the appeal is filed, of course the in this case, the district court lost uh, jurisdiction. I don't think this is uh, the sort of thing that can go on forever. But while the case is still a live case, either in the district court or in this court, uh, we think we have the ability uh, to file that affidavit, uh, and that certainly would. Uh, it, it, it's also important to the government uh, that the court address the Wyman issue, uh, which has seemingly divided this circuit and is in, appears in conflict with other uh, courts. Of well, the I just PLC. wonder about
2: that, because in some ways this case is, is even more um – Uh, unfair to the defendant because um, in my example, it was a few months later after the case was closed, the time for appeal was done. But here, we're not going to have taxation of costs. I don't know how long this case has been pending when it was filed. I have to look at the date of the brief. But we're probably talking about a year and a half, maybe two years by the time the district court, if we were to remand and have the district court do it again. And I'm just wondering whether this is the best vehicle to say, you know, we're going to forgive the affidavit, the failure to file an affidavit below.
4: Well, there's no prejudice here I me mean, mr cook is on notice on what witnesses were talking about what the costs are what the specifics are uh he had an opportunity to make those kinds of objections as well in the district court uh and chose not to so this isn't the sort of thing where we've uh concealed uh what 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 the issue is i i i also do want to indicate uh, this idea that there's a $404,000 restitution obligation is a little bit misleading because, as indicated uh, in the probation office's uh, summary of the objections to the pre-sentence report, uh, the uh, vehicles were forfeited in a civil case and through the ordinary course of administrative processes, uh, those funds eventually uh, will be used uh, to credit uh, Mr. Coker with restitution. That's not to say he still is not going to have a large restitution obligation, uh, but that uh, larger figure is a, is a little bit uh, misleading. Uh,
3: uh, count, counsel, can I follow up on, on your comment about the defendant having adequate notice of the costs? I, I think, I, I mean, I understand your point that uh, he saw who was called as a witness, how many witnesses, how long the trial went. But what would give a defendant notice of just sort of a dollar amount? Frankly, I'm not sure that I would be able to estimate that, even if you told me how many witnesses um, were called, the type of the witness, and and how long the trial went. Well,
4: I think the the numbers in the bill of costs are surely not unreasonable. I mean, mean for and some of the witnesses didn't even bother to... uh, asked for witness fees so they were not included. But uh the first one is Janice Record from OS Restaurant Services for whom we were seeking three hundred and sixteen dollars. Uh she uh Mr. Cook would know what the witness fees were. He would understand that she is somebody who had to travel from Florida uh to uh Des Moines in order to uh testify. Uh and the other figures down the line I won't Go through them in, in any detail here this, this morning, but that's uh, certainly uh, an indicator uh, to him. And uh, again, if, if he he or his attorney had a problem with those amounts, there was an opportunity to raise that uh, either informally or formally with the district court at sentencing, and he chose only to make the inability to pay argument. Uh, if, if there are no Further questions on this issue or any other, I will yield back the balance of my time and ask that uh, the the convictions be affirmed and the matter be uh, remanded for an imposition of cost of prosecution.
0: Seeing none, thank you, Mr. Call.
4: Ms. Quick.
1: The major concern here, it appears, with the cost of prosecution is reconciling Wyman and May. And I also had not thought about, does this ability to pay go-to amount? But I think what's instructive on how do we reconcile the two is this court's admittedly unpublished decision, uh, decision in Tyndall. There, there was a question of the cost of prosecution. The, the panel, in that opinion, cited both Wyman and May, did not treat those two opinions as conflicting, but still ultimately determined that May required that the district court consider the defendant's ability to pay before imposing cost of prosecution. And in that case, the government had made the same argument, that May is just flatly incorrect. And the panel said, well, we're still bound by May, and so the district court is required to consider costs of prosecution. And in that opinion, the panel even noted uh, May's language about, shall, and that it is mandatory that it be imposed. Um, Time is up. There are no further questions. We ask this Court reverse his conviction and sentence or, in the alternative, affirm the district court's order that the costs of prosecution must consider the ability to pay and, therefore, are inappropriate in Mr. Cook's case.
0: Thank you, Ms. Quick. The case is uh, submitted. I want to thank you for uh, uh, your uh, briefing and argument here today. It's been helpful. You may call the name.